Welcome, welcome back to Joker Men Podcast, the podcast about Lou Reed and John Cale and the Velvet Underground. There's two people with us today who actually know uh, far more than us uh, about, definitely about Lou Reed, but uh, for sure about other things too. Um, yes, yeah, we're joined in in honor of the thrilling new release, uh, Lou Reed's Words and Music on uh, Light in the Attic Records, uh, just out this past Friday. Uh, we're joined by Don Fleming and Jason Stern from Lou's archive team. Don and Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Happy to be here. Where the pleasure is truly our all ours. This, uh, you know, could not be. We didn't, you know, we weren't even aware that this record was coming out um, by the, you know, a few months ago when we decided that this was going to turn into a Lou Reed podcast after a Bob Dylan podcast. And so it really feels like serendipity that this is all uh, all coming together a little bit at the same time. Can you guys just maybe give us a, a brief rundown about kind of like what, uh, you know, what exactly you have done uh, in the capacity, uh, in each of your capacities on the record? Because obviously there's that element of things, and there's also that fantastic NYPL exhibit that I think you both put together um, uh, recently as well. So any sort of uh, just kind of brief intro for the folks out there. Sure. You want to start, Don? Sure. Um, <laughs> Jason was already working for Lou, um, and then I was brought on board a, a few months after Lou passed away, when the discussion came around to like what to do with Lou's archive mm -hmm. and what, and mainly how to figure out what was in it because it was really just a storage room full of boxes and no one had looked <laughs> decades. So we mapped out a plan and started looking box by box and cataloging everything. And from the very beginning, looking for audio that looked original, that looked one of a kind that Lou had made himself. Sure. And right off the bat, saw that there was tons of it. And there was a lot, he had really documented most of his tours, at least on cassette, well, reel to reel, then cassette, then dats, and then finally digital. Wow. So. You know, it was, a, it was a collection that was mostly analog, except the last decade, which was almost all digital. So we, you know, over the course of a year, basically going through and just cataloging what was there and what was in his office, the Sister Ray office, that was really what formed the archive. And it's really his business paperwork. It's, it's the story <laughs> of him as a performer and as, as a person in the studio. It's not really about his personal life. It's about his working life. But it's so detailed and just, you know, tour managers would keep receipts. And, you know, so from the 70s, we have like envelopes full of receipts from tours. And it's just kind of fascinating to That's like incredible. that detail. And a lot of people didn't keep all that stuff. So I think, you know, it's very interesting that Lou did in the way he did document himself to a certain degree. He didn't make a plan for this archive, but he did make it and he did keep it. So, you know, I think that's kind of significant. Yeah, just to give you some context on um, uh, what the archive was like when it sort of fell into our laps to deal with and figure out. I mean, so I worked for Lou for two years, um, like 2011 to 13. And after, I, I remember like in the course of my employment at the time, um, occasionally I'd have to make a run to this little storage unit uh that was up in chelsea and it was it was just like a 10 by 15 foot room stacked like floor to ceiling cardboard boxes um with no real like record of what's in any of the boxes and no real labeling going on so i'd i'd occasionally just have to run up there and grab something that was like you know kind of near the front door 
uh, and just <laughs> wonder like what's in all these boxes. And, um, you know, it's not like Lou left, uh, he didn't leave a plan of like on his way out of, uh, here's what you guys need to do with all that stuff in that room. Sure. So yeah, that, that all kind of came together, um, you know, in the, the months after he died, uh, where it was like, you know, we have an office space that we need to deal with, you know, the lease was going to run out eventually and we had to, you know, just all the sort of picking up the pieces, things you have to do. Figure out what um, meant. Yeah. So, uh, then Lori had, uh, you know, Lori Anderson had, um, had the sort of foresight to, you know, rather than just chuck it or, or I mean, obviously she's not going to chuck it, but, uh, you know, <laughs> rather than just put it into the next storage unit or anything like that. Um, she, she had the idea to, you know, let's, let's build an archive. Let's make this accessible. Uh, but first it was like, let's figure out what all is in this because like I said, I didn't have much of an idea. Lori didn't know. We had to really get in there and start opening up boxes and figuring it all out. So um, we brought in Don uh, pretty quickly. Um, and he was the guy who knew how to do such things because he was well experienced with walking into storage units uh, or basements and figuring out what to do with boxes full of like, you know, incredible historical uh, significant artifacts insane that sounds like a pretty uh titanic task so so how so i guess it sounded like just like literally the the like cataloging of the archive the store the storage unit took you guys what a year two years something like that yeah a couple of years sounds like it took a year but we didn't work it wasn't every day it was usually like two or three days a week and sometimes just once a week i mean we would do it when we could yeah. jason and jim cass who also the three of us really did it together both Jason and Jim work for Lori and they had full-time Lori projects going on during all of this as well. Sure. <clears throat> so it, it was a balance of like, it wasn't every day for a year. I mean, I think we could have done it in six weeks if we had just done nothing but that, but you know, it, that was just the nature of it. Yeah. We knew from the start that we weren't doing the definitive catalog and that wh whatever institution acquired it was going to put it into their system. Mm -hmm. So there was no need for us to go into deep detail on what we thought was important other than we wanted to, you know, we needed to figure out the value of the collection. So we were looking for things and making notes if there were autographs, if there were contracts and the Velvet Underground signed it, then, you know, it obviously adds value to that piece of paper. Of Otherwise really business paperwork isn't on its own all that extremely valuable, but as a, as a set, you know, it just becomes another thing. Yeah. So yeah, it was a process. And then we, and then we had to find a place for it to live, for it to go. And I'd worked with the Alan Lomax archive and, you know, we, that collection went to the library of Congress with the idea that it's just open to the public. There's no restrictions. You don't have to get special permission to look at it. And Lori loved that idea and wanted the same for Lou's collection and wanted as much as possible for it to just be accessible to the public. So that became kind of a natural fit. And we wanted to keep Lou in New York, keep the collection nearby. And so the performance library at the New York Public Library just felt like the perfect fit for it. And, you know, has been so far just a great, great place, you know, for it to end up. It seems like a really, I mean, the exhibit from everything we've seen, unfortunately, we haven't been able to go. I just left New York and uh, was living there for a long time. And now, uh, of course, I, not there just missed it yeah just missed it but it looks amazing um just really terrific and really well put together and seems to be you know down to the title of the uh, actual exhibition it seems like you know very thoughtful clearly made by people who understand the significance and love uh the material and, and the work it's called caught between the twisted stars yes is that the name of the correct yep yeah uh yeah, we looked at a line from Romeo had Juliet. Yeah, such a great I I just think that's a great choice for the the title of it. I was I was like so so glad that it wasn't just called like a walk on the wild side or something. <laughs> Which it, it, you know, it could have been in a, in a in a different world. 
if it were one of those like like uh, 3D immersive mm-hmm. Picasso experiences, it would be called A Walk on the Wild Side. Oh, God. <laughs> for- yeah, the Museum of yeah. Ice Cream. <laughs> the, the Lou Reed yeah. Museum of Ice Cream, where, where you go and, um, yeah, they, there's like a sort of like Andy Warhol type, like a soup can booth, and um, you can take <laughs> your picture with You're a- depressing me just with this, <laughs> this hypothetical. Yeah, I mean, that's how most things are in, in our reality, unfortunately, except for this one because of uh, a few uh, souls who actually give a shit. Well, we tried to approach it in a different way than like anything we had kind of seen or knew of in the way that these things are usually done. And for one thing, there's really no like Lou outfits, you know, it's not a rock and roll hall of fame. We do have some of the guitars, but they're very much in context of like this time period. Here's a 12 string they used on the VU reunion. Sure. And, you know, so we tried to even keep that to a minimum, but yeah, it's, we approached it as like, here's this amazing archive that's here always. Like even when this exhibition stops, you can just take the elevator to the second floor and go into the research room and go in and look at this stuff. It's, it's just always there. There and all the audio, which all the 600 plus hours of audio we transferred is already available to listen to. You just go in and plug in headphones to the finding aid and, you can hear it all on site. I mean, because there are a million third-party record labels that you know claim ownership, it is not yet possible for it to be just on you know online. But you can go on the Finding Aid online and see everything that's there, and you know then come visit and be prepared when you show up. <laughs> There's many many hours. That's yeah. Like- Early on in the whole uh, in the whole archiving process, I mean, Lori definitely. I mean, we all wanted to, you know, uh, pursue this idea of having everything online and available. Like the the whole uh, the driving force behind all of it was how we make this accessible to as many people with as little barriers as possible. But um, yeah, like Don said, because of the third party rights and stuff, we can't just stream everything uh, audio wise. So uh, the next best thing is just put it in like a public institution that anyone, literally anyone can walk into. There's no uh, no barriers of entry. You don't have to be a New York resident. You can walk in, you can access whatever you want. Anyone can get a library card. So that was kind of the solution to how do we make this available to pretty much everybody. Yeah, that's a really fantastic approach. I mean, it it uh, it kind of rhymes um, and in contrast, and in a lot of ways with um, the you know I'm sure you guys are aware like the Bob Dylan Center, which just opened in Tulsa recently, um, and mm-hmm. we were kind of following as that was coming along. Similar, which we have not been to yet. Have uh, not been to either, partially because it's in Tulsa. Um, but you know, similar uh, uh, concept in some ways, and that there's just reams and reams of of paperwork and and tons of tapes and audio and stuff on site to listen yeah, there. Um, yeah, right. It's the same kind of idea. It's really a research center with you know, in their case, a permanent you know exhibition with changing parts. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, but right, ours is only up till March. But who knows? It might travel after that. We'll see. Right. Well, I think a, a strength or an advantage of the way that, that you guys and Lori have, have approached it with Lou's material is just that it's at, it's at NYPL. Like, you know, like, like we would love to go to the Bob Center, but you got to get all the way out to Tulsa. You have to get and, a you know, proprietary Bob Dylan library card, um, which, you know, costs $40,000 a year. And um, you have to um, <laughs> you have to when you get there, like do, do a, a, a quiz and sing some songs and um do you guys want to hear some alternate titles for uh, for our archive exhibition? Oh, I found an old list. Please lay it on um, us. Uh, I the one I the one I think I was rooting for the most was "My Week Beats Your Year." Uh, yes. Um, Class- classic. <laughs> um, we've got a uh, "Here Come the Waves." That was another one. Ah, uh, yes. Um, Very nice. A thousand dreams. Oh, that's um, cool. Reflect what you are. Oh, I love that. That's very we sweet. Were, we were thinking about uh, using wait, the, our, our theme song, our intro song is we're going to have a real good time together from the 93 reunion. But there was a moment there where we were going to do the uh, the I'll Be Your Mirror from that same uh, that same set where Lou and John are kind of trading verses and John's taking that reflect what you are at the end. Beautiful. Nice. Yeah. I. Uh, it's nice to see the reunion record getting a little love. Uh, um, a I little. Think the it's so of, good. Uh, it's the version of the gift is maybe the best version of the gift. The version of heroin on there is just, I mean, in many ways, it's the, my personal anyway, like pl- platonic ideal of the band, because it's like, 
they are all there and they can perform all of it with Mo Tucker. It, and they all sound great. And and she's amazing in that. I mean, there's video of her um, actually, especially during heroin. It's like uh, just a heroic performance. Like, yeah, I, w- I wish I wasn't an actual child when they reunited. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I was one and Evan was negative two. Yeah. Uh, negative so. one. Negative one. Okay. Negative one. I, I was practically there, Ian. Almost. Um in terms of so in terms of the audio, Don, you were saying that like everything is available there to listen at NYPL, you know, it's just all there. It's all digitized already. What, you know, so this record obviously this is the first kind of commercial release where people will be able to like listen to this and stream it on Spotify and buy, you know, a packaged um, you know, sort of uh, uh, good or or record. What um, what else is there in terms of like uh, you know what's available to listen to in, at the NYPL and what you know uh, I guess are are there other like kind of packages like this that are in the works or in the kind of dreams to put together into the future? Well, the very first the very first thing we did was the um, a poetry book from from the poetry tape that we have. Oh, wow. and, uh, do angels need haircuts? And it was the reading he did in 1971 after he had left the Velvet Underground and didn't mm. do didn't perform for a year and wasn't even sure he was going to play again and thought about being a poet and a writer. And he did this one reading. And so we have a tape of that. And so we, we did a transcript of that and made a book of it. But we also included a seven inch record inside of him reading some of the poems. So that was actually the first bit of audio that came out of the archive. Wow. But we're definitely looking for, you know, many, you know, any avenues that where we can get some of the stuff in the, in the archive out. Um, and there are other things already in, in the works with light in the attic. Hell yeah. Like a Bob Dylan uh, bootleg series style uh, thing, perhaps. Well, that's what we're doing with light in the attic. It's been, yeah. It's like a Lou archive series, and this is the first thing on it. And then, you know, there's other things in the works. Match made in heaven. Yeah. And we also, uh, we put together a couple discs of bonus content on the New York Deluxe reissue that came out, what, mm. a year or two ago now? Mm, mm. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, that was like a disc of uh, live versions of the whole record and also um, demos and kind of work tapes. Of, of the songs in progress right so in that case we worked with the label that you know has ownership of the material even though we have the physical copy so basically you know we become producers on it and they get to use it and and the estate gets paid on it because they already have a deal sure and everybody's happy <laughs> we're happy because we get a lot and of the art we're very happy we're probably the happiest that. actually the, yeah i'm so, so happy yeah it's been good it. it's like we we just have to you know it's it's you have to go with the ebb and flow of the major labels and what they're willing to do at any given time. Right. We'd love for them to put up all the digital content just digitally and not worry about having mm-hmm. a physical aspect to it and just profit off of it. But at least that way it becomes streamable and people can buy it if they want to. Yeah. So I ideally down the line it would go more in that direction. But right now it's been more about finding special content that go along with, you know, particular packages that are coming out. Totally. Well, and I mean, uh, on the note of special, you know, special material, uh, you know, this record, uh, which maybe we should spend a little bit of time focusing on in particular, since it just uh, just has come out, uh, Lou Reed, Words and Music, um, is like, I cannot think of a better way, you know, if there's going to be a first disc, a first inaugural inaugural release in this Lou Reed archive series, like, this seems like the holy grail already right off the bat. Lou and John Cale, just the two of them on... A, a little tape machine in 1965 just banging out really you know fleshed out beautiful um and uh, really warm i think kind of emotional emotive uh, versions of songs that we would all come to know and love in just uh a couple years um can you guys talk a little bit about just like what what went into this release in terms of this tape is because it strikes me as a pretty like it doesn't seem like there was a whole lot of like gussying up or, or, you know, messing around with the material. It seems like it, it was probably just a pretty direct kind of transfer and, you know, a cleanup obviously, but like the magic is all, all there already. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, it, it, it was just uh, a very light touch cleanup, but we, uh, we didn't mess with it beyond that. Um, it, we, you know, the, the specialness of it is how raw it is. Uh, so we, we obviously, you know, it was like a no brainer to maintain that 
vibe for sure but it's just it's funny that we're finally at this point where it's like out in the world because we we you know physically opened up the tape like got four and a half years ago or something like that wow it's been it's been a long time that don and i have been sitting on like you know up until now only a handful of people had heard this thing um we'd been sitting on it for so long just because from opening it transferring it um getting the light in the attic deal together but then we've been mired with like manufacturing delays and just you know it's just been like years of wanting to tell the world how special this tape is and not being able to because it was too soon and like it's just cool to be on the other side of it now where here it is people can hear it like it's great we don't have to keep it a secret anymore what were some of the uh, biggest surprises for you or, or moments when you were uh, first listening to this stuff that uh, you have maybe a particularly fond or special recollection of? I remember pretty immediately. Well, so we didn't even, until we fed it onto the, you know, the tape machine, um, we had it in the back of our minds that this thing was going to be a duplicate of another own bootleg so uh there's the this tape words and music was recorded on or sorry not recorded on it was postmarked on may 11th 1965 right because mm-hmm. lou he, he made the tape he put it in an envelope he uh he was doing the poor man's copyright thing where great, the postmark line. <laughs> yeah it uh sort of establishes this thing had to be recorded before this date he even got it notarized so he took it to a notary and then he took it to the post office. So it's, it's all dated. Um, obviously, <laughs> the legal side note, I don't think this actually holds up in court. Do not do your copyrights in this way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so anyway, all which to say, there's this other known um, but not easy to get a hold of tape that uh, was recorded as a Pickwick session on May 11th, 1965. Hmm. And uh, we knew about it. We'd heard it. And that tape had it, you know, you can find it online. Uh, You can find notes about it online. There's like two takes of heroin, a couple other songs. um, And when we found this words and music tape, uh, it was a real question of, do we even open it? Because what if it's just a duplicate of this thing that already exists then we've spoiled this mystery um this object that lou himself kept intact for the duration of his life after he recorded it he spent almost 50 years keeping this thing sealed like we weren't going to rush into just opening opening this thing it it's a it's a big decision so we sat on it we debated it um and then eventually when we slice it open, it's like moment of truth. You you feed it onto the onto the, you know, the the tape machine and it you start playing it and it's either like, oh great, this is already the tape we know about, like what a waste, or holy shit, like this is this is crazy. And obviously <laughs> it was the latter, because you know, I, I think the first thing we heard. Well, was, the, first song, um, the first song on the tape is Men of Good Fortune. Yeah. And then it goes in from that to heroin. So that's already like a confusing moment because Lou is like, Men of Good Fortune, words and music we read. And you're thinking he's going to play the Berlin version Berlin, of yeah. Men of Good Fortune. And then it's just completely, like, not- entirely <laughs> unrelated. Not a single thing in common. <laughs> it's a folk song, and it's super like old school folk Greenwich Village. Yeah, Bob Dylan. I mean, now- exactly. Yeah. Okay. Men of good fortune. Words and lyrics, Lou Reed. My dear mother told me an old maid I'd be. Unless men of good fortune came courting for me A doctor, a lawyer, a minister's bride But if not asked to marry alone I would die An old maid, an old maid, an old 
men of good fortune came courting me. It just seemed like kind of like a divine uh, providence that like we finished doing two years on Dylan and covering everything there was. We started just with um, his career post uh, Blonde on Blonde, beginning with uh, the uh, with with 1967 um, post motorcycle crash and John Wesley Harding and. Uh, then it really took all this time and we kind of were figuring out what we would do next. And then we caught wind of this uh, coming out and um, we had already decided we were going to do Lou Reed, but it, it's just like the, the fact that there are actually these folk, clearly folk Dylan esque inspired songs at the very base of, of Lou Reed's career. It was like, this the the like roots of a tree that just like are are touching it was it's crazy yeah well have you guys heard the dylan covers that are yeah, on the yeah. bonus disc like yeah. what covers how many uh, there's well, two there's just yes. one on oh no there's two on there yeah, there, yeah well there's yeah. So on there's either ba- side of michael Rowe the boat yeah. there's uh yeah baby let me fall you down and uh, there's mm. don't think twice and ba- I, I if i'm remembering correctly like he doesn't even actually sing on baby yeah. let me fall you down i think it's just Why the guitar is. riff Um, but clearly inspired by Bob's version of Baby Let Me Follow You Down from the, you know, Bob Dylan 62 uh, debut record. And then, yeah, and then uh, obviously Don't Think Twice, which is sort of like, it's sort of like a, almost a demo kind of sketch sort of thing. It's like barely a minute long. And Lou's even singing like his own version of the song. Like it seems like he's come up with different lyrics. Yeah. And the Michael Rowe, The Boat Ashore is just so unique the way he does it. You know, it's not, right. it's folky. But yet, it's very, very unique the way he plays the guitar on it, especially. Right. And yeah, you know, that tape to me is maybe the most mind-blowing one, just because it is the earliest tape we found. And what's so interesting about it is it starts with like this other family on the tape singing like Hava Nagila. And it's... (laughs) They date themselves on the tape, and and so we know that it's from like '57. Oh and my God! Is Lou in high school practicing with his doo-wop band? And that's holy Jim shit. Band. That's on the tape. That's one of the things we're putting out as the extras with the word in oh music. Is this stuff? So and it begins God. with just like a, a taped over just some family. Well, he didn't tape over it. It's after this other family, the Tideman <laughs> family. So nobody, we've asked Meryl and she doesn't know who they are. We, no one quite knows who they are, but somehow I think this tape machine was at their family home and Lou recorded the doo-wop stuff on it. But what's amazing to me is right after that is this Bob Dylan stuff. Jesus. which jumps four years. I mean, this would have been 63 probably when he was recording these. He saw Bob in 64 and his band at, at Syracuse University was doing, you know, was doing Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. So this mm-hmm. all makes sense that like, I don't think he had this machine at school because it had this earlier thing on it. I think it was maybe at his parents' house and maybe when he was home, he had it in the bedroom and knocked these out, you know? Incredible. And but you hear it there. There's the obvious Dylan influence that he talks about. He talks about it in the poetry tape that we put out. He talks about how Dylan influenced him in, in college. What does he say in that? Um, in broad, broad strokes. <laughs> well, he says that um, he when he first heard about Bob Dylan and you could write songs about real things, he thought, great, I can do it, too. And then he found out, no, you can't. <laughs> and he said, and as he's doing the intro to, to reading the lyrics of heroin, he says, 
So yeah, 1964, the Beatles wrote, I want to hold your hand. And I wrote heroin. That's kind of it right there. You know, that's, that's That's the the type of thing someone, uh, Someone who would make an archive would would uh, say, you know, he knew it was important uh, from pretty early on, I think. Yeah. And he even this was 71 when he was saying this and admitting to like the Bob influence. So I don't think, you know, it was all in plain sight, but we just never heard it before. Uh, In in the VU, the day to day book, they talk about the falling spikes, which was John and first name. Yeah busking on street corners in early 65 well this is it this is them busking on street corners this is what it sounded like because they were actually doing that because i was always impressed when i first heard this how together it kind of seemed like john wasn't just like yeah looking at a piece of paper trying to follow along that sounded like they had been doing it a few times they sound really comfortable doing the whole call and response thing like they have a really good dynamic you could tell like they're they're out there having fun and it's not like a novel thing they've like they're well practiced yeah that's one of my favorite things on the tape is in i'm waiting for the man is like this john like takes the the vocal from lou when they get to that uh pardon me sir i'm uh, i'm just looking yeah. for a dear dear friend of mine <laughs> it's like right. it's like almost it's like almost like a skit or something so that busking influence totally yeah. makes sense hey white boy you chasing all women around Nothing could be further from my mind. I'm just waiting for a dear, dear friend of mine. I'm waiting for the man. Yeah, there's actually like a vaudeville, like a uh, sort of um, coffee house type of feeling. Uh, he was doing it. He was, mo- he was, you know, emulating it as he was teaching himself to be a songwriter, you know. And at the same time, he's working at Pickwick studios writing songs like beach boy songs in the afternoon and then like country and western at night you know he's he's gone he didn't have to do a folk thing as his personal sound for his songs yeah but he did so i find that kind of interesting and i think it was obviously john kale who sort of pushed him away from that and was like your words are great but i can't stand doing this harmony anymore you know, yeah. like, and, they, and they transformed over the next few months, mostly at John's apartment into the VU. But this is before they were the VU. They just simply right. this is Lou trying to copyright his songs before going into Pickwick one day. It's the same day he was like, you know, going in to record heroin. And I think he wanted to feel like I've protected it and claimed the copyright before mm-hmm. we go in and do this prop, you know, in a studio. Yeah, I love that this was dropped in the mail on May 11th, and there's also recordings from Pickwick, also mail. So, like, just lose day. Like, he just, you know, on the way to work, he just slipped this into a mailbox and then went in. It's just so crazy. Yeah, the rail, L-I-R. So he would, you know, he did. We we found the location, the, the chemist that he... Got the stamp from the certified stamp. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, the, the notary was like a yeah, it's like a little chemist pharmacy kind of thing. And then the post office, he dropped it off, is right around the corner from that, and that's all right by his parents' house. So he must have done that in the morning and then headed in to do this session later. Incredible! Th- it's really, uh, I, I just can't get over. It, it seems that you're telling us that john kale was the one who actually kind of pushed lou into doing something more rock and roll i think they brought each other to a rock and roll center yeah they each were because john was so out there with you know tony conrad and lamont young doing their own music yeah them meeting in the middle ended up being you know very innovative rock i guess what what's kind of weird to me too is like the the primitive sounded more rock and roll than right than this stuff does the totally then they and, did that together first but and that they was first so right away the, the ostrich yeah. come on let's go happened the ostrich happened first and then that was late 64 wow 
so, so I would have assumed that it, this that the ostrich was the next step in that well, evolution. I think That's, so, but wow. now Lou was in his folk mode and wanted yeah. John to help him with his songs doing that. See, that sort of seems to imply that that serious writerly uh, ambition that Lou had was was the thing that really was driving him. You know, because if the ostrich was the thing that they did first. And then he's like, well, now I really want to make it as a songwriter. And then they do this folky stuff and, you know, which also includes heroin. That's just a really interesting angle and uh, aspect of this that I did not know or figure at all. Yeah. And and really, doo-wop was kind of the early rock and roll sound. I mean, I think Lou loved that more than anything. And so when he Mm -hmm. then comes around and says, I love rock and roll, it's I don't think he like switched over from folk as much as like, he went through this whole thing as a kid. It was kind of the early rock and roll sound that he loved the most. And then it just became, you know, I think he, I think Delmore Schwartz, you know, his, his teacher at Syracuse was really his mentor. And the reason he wanted to be a writer and the reason he wanted to be very serious about it and not be a sellout by being a musician, which he Delmore kind of was like, you know, don't screw around. If you're going to be a writer, just write don't you know totally understandable at the time because there wasn't serious stuff really i guess like delmore was probably like you're gonna just be a teeny bopper yeah certainly when lou was at syracuse which would have been a year you know a couple years before you know revolver or bringing it all back home or something really start to carve out this space for you know kind of artistic you know forward thinking rock and roll music yeah the one of my favorite things about um this whole like sort of physical package uh we we reproduced this letter that lou wrote to delmore schwartz um in the deluxe edition and uh it's lou basically writing to his old mentor being like this is where my life is at i'm you know working making these songs at this company called Pickwick. They just brought in this Welsh guy with long hair. <laughs> uh, you know, like he, he literally, yeah, that's how he describes John in this letter. Like it's, it's oh, kind of that. amazing because Lou is like, clearly he's got some vision of what he's doing, what he wants to do. And you can tell it's just still kind of in formation. Um, it, it's still coming together, but you see like the pieces are starting to fall into place and he's figuring out what his sort of purpose is as a songwriter. And um, I, I mean, I just reread it before we, uh, before we did this, cause I wanted to like, just absorb it one more time. It, it's like, it's really truly incredible. We also reproduced it in that poetry book. So there's, there's a couple ways to get to it, but uh, yeah, it's just one of my favorite artifacts when it comes to like getting to the essence of how did Lou become the Lou we know. Yeah. Yeah. There's something really magic. Like, I think, you know, I've only listened to the record, you know, five, six times at this point. It's something I want to spend quite a bit more time with going forward. But like on on first couple listens, what is just like jumping out of my headphones at me like right away is just like how kind of like uh, how much fun it sounds like Lou and John are having. There there are moments like numerous moments on the record where you can literally like hear them smiling, basically, like on Too Late, for instance, towards the end when they're singing along together and really getting into the strumming and stuff. It's just like Too Late. clear that these two are just having a fucking ball together and it's like you know that's not something that you really um uh the, the two of them having a lot of fun and, and just enjoying themselves as friends and musicians is not really what what uh you think of with you know like the velvet underground or nico and white light white heat and certainly you know kind of right. where their collaboration would go along so just it's like yeah. such a rewarding kind of peek behind the curtain i think at where where this all started from you know it's it's a really good point you're raising because um it's true that Lou's humor and sort of 
uh, you know, tendency to like to have fun. It didn't always come through on the records or right. necessarily in the public persona. I mean, with some exceptions, like Take No Prisoners is like basically a masterclass in stand-up or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the reality of Lou, and granted, I knew, I knew Lou in his old age, not this version of Lou in his, you know, 20s. Um, but like the guy... We laughed a lot. That's why I got along with him. Like, he had a sense of humor. He liked to joke around. That's the reality of who Lou was. Um, it, it's just that that wasn't part of his sort of public facing persona so much. So, I, yeah, like, I, I agree that it's, it was, it's a really nice thing to be able to like bring that to light a little more now. Sure. Um, because they are having a blast on this tape. Like that, like you said, like they're they've got a great dynamic. They're clearly really good friends at this point. They're having a lot of fun, busking and um all that stuff is like that's something that gets captured here, but that they kind of held back going forward. But I wonder a little bit about you know, how that mood might have shifted as they started to realize, um, you know, bringing like electric guitars into it and actually the, the Velvet Underground kind of coalescing into the sound that they would really uh, embrace and realizing that it sounded like nothing else. They, I imagine maybe there was um, a bit of a, a kind of antagonism, well, famous antagonism, I think is like maybe if I had a big one word that's like with the the Velvet Underground are like famous well, for, but you know, you, you would think that, but I think the tapes in the collection reveal them because we have a lot of tapes of them just in the in their apartment in Ludlow, like practicing songs. Mm -hmm. And at one point, trying to fix the piano, Lou's trying to get John to fix the piano, <laughs> and they're just cracking up. And Lou has this particular cackle, and we hear it a lot <laughs> of these tapes. There's a tape where he, John, and Nico writing songs and 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 Lou just like says funny things and cackles and they're all like they're not and this was well into it so they didn't get funny enough and what you know it was weird because they don't seem stressed out on these tapes they seem ah, incredible you know that's one of the revelations of this uh, material uh, but I, I think in reference to their public facing uh, personas that that and that goes back to that um letter to delmore schwartz like i it seems like there's a it's an interesting a really revelatory sort of peek behind um what was going on because publicly it was all so um like air uh so tight and and black jackets and sunglasses and the unsmiling affect there's that sort of hard exterior um, I think that became, unfortunately, their dynamic later on in life. You know, it seems that way that like later on, they did not have that fuzzy relationship that, you know, right. yeah. but you certainly see it well into the VU, which I so kind of surprises me. But yeah, I think, yeah, by the time they even did the, the, the record together and the reunion, things were, uh, you know, I don't know. I guess it's like a mutual admiration of each other as musicians, but just couldn't really deal with each other's personalities. Yeah. I, I think they maintained like a lot of respect for each other as, you know, as people. Um, and Lou, as fellow Lou and John. Lou and John. But uh, I, yeah, I suppose the friction was probably when it came to like business dealings, um, just kind of guessing. But, I, you know, they, they maintained... Um, utmost respect for each other like to the end of Lou's life I recall um you know when the super deluxe version of white light white heat came out um I forget what year that was maybe like 2012 or something and uh Lou had gotten a promo copy from the label and it just showed up in the mail one day they didn't really give him a heads up that they were even really doing the super deluxe and at first he was like he was kind of pissed off he was like like you're just gonna put this out without consulting me at all like what like what are you doing over there you know speaking to no one but kind of addressing the label um but <laughs> then he then he pulls out like one of the bonus discs and i believe it's what live at the gymnasium ends up on that deluxe version of white light white heat mm. from uh 67 and he puts it on and um side note about how Lou listened to music just 
always like volume cranked like he just you know he needed it loud hell yeah um <laughs> so he's he's cranking this uh this you know old recording of the vu from way early on and he's just like suddenly just totally vibing like really getting into john's bass playing and he then he just like walks over to his computer opens up like a compose email window and just sends john like a very sweet kind of like email just saying that he's listening to this uh recording and how how amazing his playing is oh and my God. It, it was yeah it was just like a and I, like you know i just happened to be in the room when this happened and i didn't i wasn't really asking him like what are your thoughts on john these days you know it was just <laughs> i just remember taking notice like yeah like they whatever i've heard whatever rumors there are about animosity like clearly lou is just writing to his friend his like buddy that yeah there's some distance at that point in time but like all the respect is still there totally yeah i mean the, the two of them i think that's that's why like that a that's why we decided to do this show the way that we're doing it Blue and, and john this and kind Luke. of like contrast and and um um you know rivalry almost that they have throughout their careers after the it's like a um, marriage and then divorce yeah, and exactly then, just yeah. like they've been through so much together i you know it, it, it uh at the, the end of the garland day jeffrey's connection are you doing a show on the garland jeffrey's connection between the two of them uh, I don't know that I know the Garland Jeffries connection. Garland well, played with both of them, I believe. I mean, there's recordings, but because Garland went to Syracuse University with Lou, right? We did like this oral history with him, but then he ended up like doing a bunch of stuff with John. So he had a relationship with both of those guys. Was there for the VU, and then ended up, you know, afterwards playing with both of them. And I, how many people out there played with both Lou and John? Sure. You know, but I think he's like he's a one of the oldest friends of Lou's. So that was kind of interesting when I realized like, oh, wow, you did a lot of stuff with John as well. I didn't realize it at the time until we talked to him. Maybe we'll need to do a Garland Jeffries uh, uh, one off uh, exclusive episode. Um, I don't want to keep you guys for too much longer because you've already been so generous with your time. Uh, Jason, I do just like uh, sort of bonus, just like curiosity on my end. So you were with Lou from like 2011 right like you were actually working with lou yeah. so like you know kind of the lulu the lulu era um do you have any other just sort of like uh you know it, 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 color or or insight into uh what what he was uh, like in those days or like i mean um so i i, I wish i was there during the lulu sessions but i came in when it was the, the record Same. was recorded but i remember like within like the first it was like the first couple of weeks on the job, uh, maybe like a month in or something. Um, it's like the the release party for the album. And I barely know anyone yet. Like I'm pretty new to the whole thing. And I'm just in a room with like Metallica. And in my, <laughs> in my, in my mind, like, you know, I would listen to a fair bit of Metallica growing up as like a teenager. Um, but in my mind, I was just like, what the fuck? Like, how, like, how did I end up <laughs> in this situation? Like, it was, it all just happened a little out of nowhere. But I mean, I, I don't know. I, uh, it's easier if like the Lou anecdotes and the stories come back to me when someone like reminds me of something. So it's kind of hard to pull one out of the, out of the hat right now. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, Lou, Lou is like contrary to people's sort of, I don't know, go-to uh, assessment of, like, how he might be, his temperament or whatever. Lou was, like, a really generous, sweet guy who liked to laugh a lot. And, I, you know, I, I even feel a little weird, like, pulling the veil back because obviously he had a lot of um, intention with his public persona mm -hmm. and it was a very well-crafted kind of thing. Um, it's hard to be like no it's fine to tell people that in fact he was actually a very nice guy <laughs> <laughs> and i think one other you know quick thing about um the record and, and a special moment with john and lou is that they do pale blue eyes because mm -hmm. john had left the band when the when it was finally recorded he's mm -hmm. not on the third album version oh, yeah so this was you know 
this was, you know, kind of pretty amazing that it went back this far. And here's John doing it with Lou on it from the very beginning. Yeah, that that's an amazing version uh, moment. And then the like eight something minute version of Wrap Your Troubles in Dreams, which is John John sings the whole thing himself. And there's that like what is that like a wood block they're using as percussion or something? That's like a really wild one. You know, we thought it was a woodblock at first as well, but I was just, um, I happened to be just reading about that song recently, and it's, um, John refers to it being a uh, Afghani instrument that he had called, um, God, I don't want to butcher the name of this thing. Oh, Sarinda, uh, uh, Sarinda. Of course, and, <laughs> Sarinda, uh, it's like of a, course. <laughs> which is a, yeah, which is like a stringed instrument with, I, you know, it's a very bulbous, like it's got like a hollow body and strings. And John talks about how uh, the percussion on Wrap Your Troubles is this woman, uh, Electra, who was briefly crossed paths with the falling spikes. Mm -hmm. uh, she's in the back of the Sorinda. I, I don't. So Electra was on the Sorinda with the falling spikes. Is that the <laughs> sentence I get to say? <laughs> so, so she, here's where it gets a little weirder. There's another piece of writing where after, after John talked about Sorinda playing, uh, sorry, uh, uh, John talked about Electra playing Sorinda on the song. Sorinda, uh, sorry, Electra. Electra. Later sorry. Uh, I, I, she I, disputes I, it and says, I was not, I, I just sang, I never played any instrument. I don't know what John's <laughs> talking about. I didn't break any guitar. <laughs> so it's, it's a little murky, but I always thought it was a woodblock too, but this leads me to believe that someone is like just tapping the back of this, instrument that I'd never heard of before. There you go. This, Electra, okay. Electra on the Sorinda. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that moment in the tape, though, where it suddenly goes from like this just funny, you know, light rock and roll. Well, it goes out of buzz, buzz, buzz. So on the original tape. So after buzz, 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 it's the very last thing. And suddenly it sounds like the Velvet Underground. Yeah. I mean, right. it, yeah. You know, that was a shocking, as shocking as hearing the first part of the tape is when that hit. And it was like, whoa, how did that just happen? Yeah. The, yeah. The, the sound was there. They just needed to be in a studio with a couple other people in the band with someone with some money to, <laughs> to record these sessions. Yeah. There's, there. it's always at one point or another on any one of these recordings, you can see one of the signature aspects of the Velvet Underground there. I mean, on heroin, it doesn't really sound like the heroin that we know musically, but lyrically it's all there. Uh, there's the humor at various points on here is not unlike the humor that you we know from uh the velvet underground even though that is sort of famously a bit more dark well um, the difference in some of the lyrics was like one of the things that really struck us even with heroin where it's almost all the same but the very first line i is, don't yeah right i right. know where i'm going I, and john Cale i know just where i'm going that. i know just where i'm going and john yeah. had said like he was mad at lou for changing the line yep and then also pale blue eyes is almost completely different it's right. only that chorus is the same all the lyrics are completely different and and we tried to track that one and and it looked like even when they were record, even when they were uh, <clears throat> playing with Doug Yule before they went in to record the third album, mm -hmm. they were doing that song, and it again had even completely different lyrics. <laughs> so he just kept rewriting that one over and over. Whereas you see other songs that are almost done the first time, and then something like uh, you know Men of Good Fortune where. Didn't keep the song, but kept the title. Just the and title, yeah. And yeah, then we, all the Stephanie something. says, Lisa says, I can't. Yeah. There's like so many of those. That, yeah. yeah, yeah. And that all makes sense because like we just, uh, the most recent episode we recorded as we record this right now is the Coney Island Baby episode, which has got like, she's my best friend. And that's in 76. Right. So like even yeah. up, you know, the first like, you know, six, seven years of Lou's solo career, he's rewriting and re-recording Velvet songs. So like 
you know, I guess you can see that right here, right? Like even from the very beginning, he was just working on these titles, working on these ideas and waiting until he felt like he nailed them to actually put them out into the world. Yeah, over in the vaults at NYPL, we have a version of Kill Your Sons that is just, again, kind of like Men of Good Fortune, totally right. different, think- like the opposite. Wow. Anthony DeCurtis uh, mentions that in his book, that there is an original version um, that I think he mentions that there's a version feels like a, a sort of protest folk song. It is. Yeah. yeah. It's protest about the war. Yeah. 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 It's about, yeah, it's a, it's a Vietnam protest song, basically. Right. What a shame that Lou Reed uh, abandoned folk music and went electric. Right. Uh, <laughs> I'm still mad at him for doing Judas. that. Judas. <laughs> <laughs> <Do your thing. laughs> He really turned his back on all of us, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, sold out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sold, sold out. Uh, Jason and Don, thank you guys both so much for joining us here. Uh, I mean, uh, if you have anything to plug, now would be the time to do it. But, uh, you know, I think the plugs mainly are Lou Reed, Words and Music, uh, available now on Light in the Attic Record, and Lou Reed... Um, uh, what I'm forgetting the title now. Uh, Caught Between, Between the, the Twisted Stars. There we yeah. go. Yeah, Library of Performing Arts at Lincoln Center, and um, we are doing, we have a little listening room over there, and we're doing a changeover. Um, We've been doing machine music for the first part. It was all metal machine, quad metal machine, the rock symphony, which was like an early uh, sort of, not a demo, but a version of it that he did back in the VU days. So we're, we've been featuring yeah, I, Metal Machine, but now we're going into a BU phase next. I'm very curious how the lyrics changed um, on Metal Machine music. <laughs> <laughs> they got a little more shrill as time went on. Um, but we, we're really digging into like a lot of the gems we've just referred to in this uh, discussion of uh, these VU kind of rehearsal sessions, songwriting sessions. We're spotlighting a lot of that stuff. We've got some really special stuff in the in the listening room for this uh, Velvet Underground program. So it's a good time to come to New York and visit um, the New York Public Library. Hell yeah. We're going to have to do that ourselves one of these days, Evan. Uh, well, thanks again, uh, Jason and Don. Uh, folks, you heard them. Lou Reed, Words of Music. Uh, go buy it. Go give it a spin. It's good stuff. This young man has a promising career. Someone to look out for. (laughs) (laughs) Linger on your pale eyes. Linger on your pale
by the hand Is he the new one you found? Brand new loving man Brand new loving man Finger on your pillow Girl, you're pale blue eyes. Linger on.